Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast on 640 Toronto. We wrap a week, and what a week it was from uh, Blizzard Geddon. That's not a word, but it is now. From Blizzard Geddon on Monday to uh, a terrible, terrible tragedy in Brampton that shook all of us, and we're all still a little shook by it. Uh, the death of three kids in a house fire. Uh, Mayor Brampton, Patrick Brown, we had him set to come on prior to that tragedy, but uh, he maintained his commitment and a grieving community in Brampton and Peel region. We talk about some of the data from John Byrne Murdoch in the UK that we're watching really closely here in Ontario and probably through all of Canada. We're watching what the U.S. does. We're watching what we do. We're seeing positive signs about declines, not just in cases uh, of Omicron, but obviously the hospitalizations and the ICU numbers, things we've been talking about on this show for six, seven months. I'm glad the cool kids have caught on. Um, John Byrne Murdoch's phenomenal from the Financial Times. We do What Happened When this day, January 21st, and much, much more. Thanks for checking us out. Thanks for joining us all week. We know the show is growing, and we appreciate you listening. Toronto Today starts now. I'm going to get to um, these issues of Toronto-based teachers sitting in cars um, on strike. Also, question mark, question mark. They're getting the great weather for it. Um, I've heard from some of their colleagues. I haven't really heard from some of their students, um, but they're not teaching their students right now. I have thoughts on that, and I want to point out um, we have a very narrow definition. I played the, the audio from Christine Elliott the other day about misinformation, and she's right to go after doctors who are writing fake vaccine certificates, uh, doctors who say the vaccine will do this and do that and do the other things and they're dangerous. I, I got it. Yes, 100%. That's misinformation. But there's also bad information out there, and, uh, and I don't want to name the person, but I got to call it out and I'm going to get there in a few minutes because I worry people will believe it and it's absolutely not accurate. I ran this past three epidemiologists who I trust immensely yesterday and they were all like, not accurate, not right, shouldn't be in a newspaper. I'm going to get there in a few minutes time. We're camp- We're getting into camps right now, aren't we? We, are- we really are. And we do this sometimes with pop culture. We decide, well, you know, Van Halen gets a new singer, right? Sammy Hagar. No, I'm, I'm David Lee Roth till I die, man. DLR, that's Van Halen. I'm not into this Van Hagar business. My favorite, one of my favorite bands, Duran Duran, splits up. Well, what about the guys that went to Power Station? I don't know. I like the arty thing that Arcadia was. That song, Election Day. So you get into camps on things, don't you? Should we re-sign this free agent in sports? We're getting into camps on COVID right now, and I'm glad that The Guardian identified this. Let me read you what they wrote and run this past you, okay? Let me th- let me toss this softball down the middle of the plate for you. The first group, we got three groups of COVID camps, so you decide which one you're in. And whether or not this first group I mentioned is dwindling by the day. The first group still seem to see the virus as the same deadly one of March 2020 despite the massive scientific project progress in managing it. And they suggest extremely cautious measures. Sound like you? Maybe it is. I heard the premier, by the way, yesterday use the phrase confident and cautious in the same sentence. That's kind of a contradiction in terms. You can't be cautiously confident. You can't be confidently cautious. They don't work. I know they both start with the same letter. So it's lovely to invoke some alliteration, if you will, if you don't mind. But no, you can't be confidently cautious or cautiously confident. The second group, as per The Guardian, says they've been right all along in that mass infection is unavoidable. This is the let it rip group. 
They ignore the dramatic differences that mass vaccinations and treatments have made. Avoiding serious illness from COVID-19 now is wholly different from 2020. Maybe you're in that group. Does the state of Florida ring a bell? (laughs) They've been close to let it rip from the beginning. I know people that live down in Florida. They lived a a little bit of a different life. um, And I think we may look down on them enviously right now. But I'm not sure they had it right, given their death toll and the uh, madness and chaos and mayhem pre-vaccination. And that leads me to the third group. And I think the first group is dwindling. The second group was a little woo-woo, and I'm running my hands past my ear here. The third group is becoming most of us. You tell me if I'm wrong. Where I sit right now, this is the third group. They've evolved their position. As the data and tools, namely vaccines and therapeutics, have also evolved to transform COVID-19 into something more akin to other infectious diseases that we control and manage. Um, The columnist writes, my analysis has consistently responded to the latest evidence. What's the evidence, you ask? First, we now have safe and effective vaccines that protect the vast majority of people from hospitalization and death. That's true. That's very true. Recent data from... uh, the uh, any country you want to look at shows unvaccinated people, and and it's about it's about five and a half right now in uh, Ontario. When I checked yesterday afternoon, unvaccinated people are about five and a half times, and it's fluctuated more likely to be hospitalized with COVID nineteen. That is true. Hey Greg, why are there more fully vaccinated people in hospital? Because there's more fully vaccinated people. Nine out of ten people have got at least two shots. Okay, so that percentage was always going to drop. Now, are fully vaccinated people uh, more likely with Omicron to spread the virus to each other? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. But then you have to determine what your individual danger is from Omicron. And most of us have done that. Most of us are ready to accept that it won't be some moral failure to get Omicron. And most of us, I don't want it. But if I was 18 and I got it, would I stress about it? No, not at all. Okay, if I was 30, I wouldn't. Um, Let me go back to the column. Early in the Omicron wave, people who were not vaccinated were more than eight times more likely to be hospitalized. That's an Ontario stat who were fully vaccinated. So that's early in the Omicron wave. That number I looked at is from the end of November, November 29th. Just picked up a random date and wanted to use it for data. This is also true for the third group I mentioned. If everyone who was offered a vaccine and booster would take it, the pandemic would effectively be over in richer countries. Also true. What group do you sit in? The first group, you're playing by a March 2020 guideline, April 2020 guideline. I've I've never been more afraid than right now with Omicron. Well, you're in that first group. I mean, you're vaccinated, you're boosted. We've made tremendous scientific progress. We sure know how to avoid the virus. Don't pay attention to all these maniacal stores. I was at a store, a big chain store the other night, and they've got like enough plexiglass for a hockey rink up. It's brand new. Why? What for? We've got testing. We've got masks in in crowded places. Okay, I could still say, if you want to wear it, fantastic. Absolutely. And then we've got the second group that says, let it rip. But this third group, to me, that's about three and four of us. You tell me what group you're in uh, at 289-975-1640. And I want to get to some of those texts in the next few minutes. 289-975-1640 is that phone number, 289-975-1640. But that's what I see. And something else here I'm spotting, and I'm going to get to this Toronto Star article from yesterday in a second about the teachers in the parking lot. Um 
this has is getting framed right now by Group 1. Let's go Group 1 against Group 3 here. Group 1 is starting to frame this. Have you noticed this? They're framing this as purely political. That people like me who might be in Group 3 who have seen an opinion evolve and progress and I know my individual level of safety and my own individual health makes me confident to do anything and everything. You want to put me on a cruise ship Monday? I got to come to work on Monday. I haven't scheduled a vacation day. I don't know who would be here if I wasn't. I'm sure it'd be great, but I can't go on a cruise Monday. But if you asked me, I would. You want me to go to the Leafs game tomorrow night? I got three shots. I feel really healthy. I would go. Unfortunately, we can't go just yet because of our hospital health capacity issues. Well, I mean, that's true, right? It's not about protecting individuals right now. It's protecting our healthcare industry. And I emphasize the word industry. It's an industry, all right, um, the deeper you dig. So, no, I, I, I don't feel terribly concerned about my own health. But I get framed, and people like me are getting framed by some in Camp 1 as being now right of center. You have moved to the right. Well, I'm not sure about that. I think some people have departed that concept. But yes, there are people on the left of center strongly supporting restrictive measures in the fight against the pandemic. And they have been from the get-go. But to me, a lot of people who lean left of center have, pardon the phrase, woken up. Lockdowns have been devastating devastating costs of implementing lockdowns, not just financially, but emotionally and obviously health-wise. They've delayed elective surgeries, important surgeries. They've prevented people from feeling confident to go see doctors. They've cost us in-person education from five-year-olds to 25-year-olds in graduate school. People are paying full freight for university, watching their kids sit in residences, and, and their Zoom classes are four of the five courses that they take. They stare into a screen in their residence room. That's not an education. So um, there's a gentleman named Professor Mark Woolhouse, and he lives in the United Kingdom. He's a member of SAGE. That's the equivalent of their uh, science table, if you will. The science table that the UK government just ignored and said, we're good. We know you think doom and gloom is coming. And by the way, they estimated 6,000 deaths a day in the United Kingdom because of Omicron. It's been more like about 300. That's weird that a science table-esque body missed the mark by that much. I'm sure that will get pointed out and they'll be held accountable. Oh, okay. That's not how this works. But the argument that Mark Woolhouse makes, again, he's a member of this group, is that long lockdowns promote more harm than good. And they have failed to protect the vulnerable. I gave you a stat earlier in the show that documented that we're not getting boosters out to the people that need it the most. 10% of homeless people under the age of 65 have boosters. That means 90% don't. We're not at three in four people over 65, period, getting boosted. But I'm really glad your 19-year-old son has a booster, (laughs) okay? You You got college athletes getting boosters at the age of 20 or 21, and we've got 70 year olds that don't. Does that seem like we're doing this all the right way? Not so sure about this, but it's one thing to watch for. Be really cautious about this, okay? There's a new direction in how we critique COVID measures and policies. People said to me, Greg, what'd you think of, what did you like the best about yesterday with all the new, like we're acting like we're getting given presents by the province here. What do I like? All of them. What, what do I like the most? Every single one of them. Which ones were the wrong ones? Which ones were the wrong restrictions to implement on January 3rd? 
also all of them. This didn't work. This didn't make a damn bit of difference to our hospital capacity. We closed schools for four weeks. Christmas closed it for two weeks. The restrictions closed it also for two weeks. Cases were going to go up super high and then plateau and come down. And that's exactly what's happening right now with no influence whatsoever from school. But for a lot of people who lean more left today, you can justify almost anything in the collective good. And that's why people, I think, on the right view this like you're not you're being very uncritical in your thinking. Okay, that's a problem from where I came from. I grew up in a household that was clearly left and they would champion. My parents would champion civil rights, freedoms. Those are all associated with individual liberties, the right to work, the right to protest, the right to love who you want to love, marry who you want to marry. And when we expand those freedoms out, that's been a central tenet of leftist ideology. So something went a little wrong here, okay? Um, where the left's the left is embracing authoritarianism and uh, yelling at six-year-olds for talking in schools and not exactly being open to the concept of all the harm the lockdowns have done. The left has historically championed civil rights and freedoms in society. And where are they now? Where are they now? Well, these are the questions we have to ask here. Let me get to this really quick in the Toronto Star. I don't want to, I didn't link to the story and I don't want to name this, but I want to clear something up. I don't want to name the author of the piece. It's not my buddy, Bruce, but I'm going to bring this up. It's a story about uh, teachers in parking lots. Toronto high school teachers remain in parking lot, refusing to work amid unsafe conditions brought on by COVID. Okay, that's their right. They're backed by whether it's the unions or whatever. That's fine. They've got a right to do that. To me, um, I support that, okay? Now, many have said, well, one day of employment insurance would sure make their workplace seem a lot safer. And that's probably true also. Many of the teachers protesting right now, I didn't see them in their cars outside grocery stores and Amazon warehouses and other places that weren't actually safe for people not making six-figure incomes with a benefit plan for life. But that's neither here nor there. Here's what I have a problem with. Uh, they ask a social science teacher who says, she says the most pressing issue is lunchtime. Students are congregated together in unventilated stairways, stairwells and hallways, sitting together in close proximity and are unmasked. Yeah, that's how we eat, without masks on. It's a very unsafe situation, especially at lunch. Well, who's it unsafe for? Vaccinated high school kids? Not really. They can go to restaurants and movie theaters soon. They eat at home. They've had kids over. Um, is it safe for a 44-year-old boosted teacher? No, not really also. Here's the problem. Uh, Wilson, another uh, teacher, uh, uh, I don't know whether this is a Mr. or Mrs. now that I think about it. It looks like Ms. Wilson notes that because many students live far too uh, far to go home for lunch and frigid temperatures keep them indoors, they're elbow to elbow sitting on the ground in the hallway with no masks on at lunchtime. Here we go again. This is the sentence that's a huge problem. I sent this to three epidemiologists and there's like, no, this should not have even been published. This is especially concerning because some students are not vaccinated. And those who are, here's the key part, double vaccinated may have waning immunity because in Ontario, those under age 18 are not eligible for a booster. No, in the countless issues with school safety, and I'm with you, some schools are safer than others right now, and that's not right. I'm with you, teachers. You know that. But no, <laughs> the last of anybody's problems right now is a 15-year-old who's double vaccinated who's got waning immunity. No country is forcing 12, 13, 14-year-olds to get boosters right now. They're not eligible for a reason because their immunity is not waning. This is a bad sentence. This is bad science. This is bad data. This is bad journalism.
plain and simple. So I'm not going to link to it, but I want you to know what's real and what's not real out there. And nobody is saying that, that double vaccinated students with waning immunity is a problem in our school system. It ain't. It probably never will be. Shiba Siddiqui joins me right now. People said to me yesterday, they're like, oh, end of the like the longest week of the year. And I'm like, I don't know. Um, <laughs> they went back to school, right? We take our take our W's where we can get them, right? Oh, absolutely. I didn't feel like it was the longest week of the year at all. I had a great week, to be honest with you. I mean, the snowstorm was, yes, it did. I mean, for, for me, it was an adventure, but that's because I didn't have anywhere to be, anywhere to drive. We were all at home, lots of hot chocolate. And then, yes. The kids are back in school. My house has been silent for the last two days. Yeah. It is beautiful. My marriage is back on track. Oh, good. We uh, yeah, we were a- all we were all talking about that. <laughs> uh, we we talk about that between five thirty and six. Gordon and I are never sure. Well, you can't get a word in edgewise <laughs> when those kids are home. So, like, we're actually you know we can actually talk to each other. It's just silent around here. And by the time they're ready to come home, we miss them. So it works out really well. But you're also they're getting to how old's your oldest? He just turned 13 this week. They're almost getting to the age where they are staying up notably later than you. And I can't. I Oh, like, they already do. That's They're a problem. Like, that's, that's because, a problem. But you know I go to sleep very early. You do. You do. Right? So, I mean. But they're outlasting me when it's 1145 at night and I've already been asleep maybe, maybe for half an hour. And I hear, Dad, Dad, Dad. And I'm like, there's no knowledge of time. There's no sense or understanding of time or space or anything when they're calling me to come to their bedroom for like, because their Wi-Fi clicked off or something or or a Netflix password. (laughs) No, mine wouldn't do that. I think they know know they're going to get more than a Wi-Fi password if they call me into their room for that. Now, do you know what? um, I'm just seeing this now, so I'm throwing this at you, um, but I wonder if Gordon knows it too. Do you know what Galentine's Day is? Of course I do. I already have plans. I told you, as soon as rest, uh, restaurant restrictions lifted, <laughs> us girls made a, a reservation. So, Gord, do you know what Valentine's Day is? Yes, I do. How am I? Okay, so I'm really late. I, I know it's from a Parks and Rec episode, but I don't think that created it. But no, I, it's, it's a marketing tool somewhere created somewhere by some marketing Like PR Blue firm. Monday was. Exactly. The most depressing, uh, without the G, day of the year. So, Valentine's Day <laughs> is when? Tell me when it is. Uh, it's February thirteenth, the day before Valentine's. So why is it, so you get kind of get two dinners for the price of one <laughs> in twenty four hours? You go out with your gal pals, and then there's obviously obligations for husbands and boyfriends everywhere on Valentine's Day, right after Galentine's Day. Oh, but it's a celebration, right? It's a celebration of women. There are so many, and not everyone has a partner, right? So I mean, it's a celebration for those who, you know, might feel lonely or feel like they're missing out on valentine's day just to know that your your friends are there for you what do i now my wife will be in china then what well um can i crash <laughs> galentine's day party somewhere in the durham region is that gord would you recommend that can i just kind of show up and hi ladies what are we talking about with a mask on and sit down with them at probably not at kelsey's probably not you probably get some icy <laughs> stairs but uh, we can have a, a bro times day oh great yeah when, <laughs> yeah and as Sheba's well aware, and as we document considerably on this show, when will men have their day where they can stand oh, up, be it's counted March for? 3rd. Is no, it March third? No. It's Steak and Sex Day. I've never heard of this either. Really? No, that's a thing. So men were in an uproar that what do we get on Valentine's Day? So I, th- I think it's March third. I'm going to double check, but yeah, it's called Steak and Sex Day, where you make your <laughs> well man again. My wife's away. Let me say that. So that's going to be a complicated day if you're expecting that. I believe so it's, it's a month. Oh. following so march 14th i believe oh it's march 14th 
Well, well the, the one month after. But then that's so close to St. Patrick's Day. That's a lot to to handle. It's great for me because it's two days before my birthday. So. Well, thanks for. Well, okay. You're oh, all you're you, you and Dave Bradley are both birthday guys. You're like, hey, I don't want to, you know, you're let Pisces. anything out of the bag here. But somebody's turning you know? XX numbers. I like coming in and nobody knowing it's my birthday. <laughs> and, uh, Sheba so knows. Do you, I, do I was very sh- stealth about my birthday last August, early in the yes. month. Never mind. Yes. It doesn't matter what day it is. Well, don't do try you guys celebrate Valentine's Day? With your significant others? Yeah, yeah. In fact, we have... Now, here's what I still do, and I don't know if anybody else does this. We do a dating anniversary, and our first date was the day before Valentine's. It was February 13, 2000. So we remember that, and then we went out again for Valentine's the next night. That's risky business going oh, on a first date wow. on yeah. February 13th, because yeah. of it all... I've been but on some bad first dates, and so have the people that have been with me. That, well, we've all been on some bad first dates, but that's some pressure. Even your second date on Valentine's Day, she's like expecting something at that point. Yeah, we went to see uh, Morrissey in concert on the 13th. So, you know, no no proper relationship should stem from songs that sad and depressing. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. Or you want to take a steak knife to your abdomen after the... Uh, <laughs> Talk about steak and sex, steak and knives, maybe. And then Valentine's being the next day, we just went to a movie. I can't remember where we went. Red Robin. You and know, the somewhere. rest is history. The rest, yes. There you go. It is For that. us, I'm, I've never been a Valentine's person. I'm not big on it. I don't really care. And I told my, I told my husband this. I told Sod, I'm like, you know what? I don't care. And he kept asking me. I'm like, I don't care. No, whatever. Let's not do anything. I'm fine with it. And then the day came and all I saw online was people getting flowers and presents and jewelry and chocolates and all these things people are posting and here the day is going on and I'm not, nothing's happening for me. So by the end of the night, we got into a huge fight. And he, because I wonder he who started it. Well, he listened to me. You're not supposed to listen to me. And I felt really left out. So ever since that Valentine's Day, he knows no matter what I say, no matter what mood I'm in, do something. Nothing big. Why do are women, we, we talked about this earlier in this week, and Dave and Gord know this. Why are women so honest about like, well, no, you can't hang that good fellow's painting of the two dogs anywhere else except here. But then when you say you don't want anything for an anniversary <laughs> or a birthday, you're not, you're lying to our faces. Why is that? I don't It was a tough lesson learned in our house <laughs> that's why my men die earlier because they were too busy trying to read between the lines for our whole lives no that's not why they die earlier oh, okay. that's it's not, not why. and left-handed men die way it's... earlier as i said a couple weeks ago on the show people are they're watching my every move now being a left-handed man <laughs> um in a minute t- this divorce registry thing we saw a story in the new york post what what happens here i love it so there are some companies that are popping up obviously you know I'm at a stage of life where so many of my friends are getting divorced. And so these companies Because of Galentine's Day, really. Too much (laughs) partying on Galentine's Day. No, that's not why. That's not why. But um, so they've started divorce registries. So just like a a marriage registry where you you go somewhere and you click on everything you want and you, you get gifts. This is the same thing. There's these two companies out there. And when you get divorced, you know, you separate everything half and half. So half of your kitchen items, half of your household items, they go to one partner or another. And you're missing half a house of internal things that you'll need. So this is a registry to get that other half back. So your friends can gift it to you. You sign up, you figure out what you want. And it's kind of like, you know, you bring it to the divorce party. Have you ever been to a divorce party? I No. Dave, any plans for the weekend? <laughs> wait, wait. <laughs> Who's getting divorced? Wait a second. All of Sheba's friends, apparently. We'll go it's, through them alphabetically after the break. I'm at that phase of life where, yeah, they're dropping like flies wow. now, especially during a pandemic. Good for the four really? of us. Four thrilling, happy, exciting marriages still <laughs> roll, still kicking around. Here. I got to touch wood there because yeah, yeah. You, you never yes. know, right? 
You know, yeah, you know, for sure. I hope not. Anyway, I, now I've been I've been through a live-in. <laughs> now I've been through a live-in breakup where you. Uh, so I lived with a girl when I was twenty-three and she was twenty-one. We lived together for two years. It ended kind of messily. But then you are you are you are you're splitting ass. I kept the cat. Even we only had the one cat. Oh, but we're you're hard. splitting CDs and you're splitting. Um, yeah. you're splitting, uh, you know, furniture and end tables. I, it sucked. I, I'd never gone through it again. Don't want to. So there you go. You sign up for divorce registry and you're good. Do men have a, a site? Not that I'm. <laughs> it's, it's for men and women. I didn't. It's, okay. It's a local bar, really. Yeah. I'm, lo- <laughs> I'm looking at these two women on New York Post, uh, that started Fresh Starts Registry and, um, they look like a ball of laughs. They look happy. Are you being sarcastic? I can't. Yeah, they no, they look like uh, they well you're they just a... don't look terribly thrilled with uh, like well, you started they're... this wonderful business and even yubs like us are talking about it, but they don't look terribly thrilled. That's they look a well, bit scarred. Well, it's a tough business. It's a tough industry. It's and it's very tough experience. We all know people who've been through it, and yes. it's not easy. It's not easy. Yeah, yeah. We're getting through it, and what a difficult week, and an unspeakably difficult week uh, in Peel Region and in Brampton. You heard the news earlier, and Dave Bradley mentioned in the cast, uh, resetting this horrific tragedy. This is like getting, you know, we're, we're a little bit numb to tragedy now, but this is like smelling salt under the news, this horrific, horrific scenario. Um, with three boys found dead in a Brampton house fire. Um, the parents were out. The boys were uh, 15, 12, and 9. And a fire started on Ellis Drive in the city of Brampton. Um, Peel police got a call, a 911 call, about 9 in the morning, about 10 minutes after 9 on Thursday. Um, house engulfed in flames. Either the call came too late. It spread like crazy. It is awful. And uh, I don't mean to break your heart going into a weekend, but that's exactly uh, what this story is. And we reached out to our next guest. We were going to have him on anyway, because um, we like to get the, the lay of the land and talk about moving forward and progress. And, and I think his messaging is, is on point for all of that. So we enjoy our chats, but we start with really heavy hearts today. This is the Mayor of Brampton, Patrick Brown. Uh, Mayor Brown, it is. Uh, I, I can only imagine how your community feels, how people on that street feel, an outpouring of emotion, but, um, but nothing changes. What a what an unspeakable tragedy this is. Yeah, I don't think words can describe a, a loss like that, or 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 ele- or adequately um, explain uh, how this is going to shatter uh, this neighborhood uh, and and the lives of of, of this family. Um, just, uh, I think any parent's uh, worst uh, nightmare. Uh, uh, the firefighters and police got there six minutes after the call, but the fire just engulfed the home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as they recounted the incident to me, uh, it just make, makes you go numb. You know, the, the child um, had called 911 from the home, um, screaming for the first responders to come in and save them because they couldn't get out of the house. And it was just one of those fires that that uh, engulfed the house too quickly. So just... Uh, it, it's it, it just a really, really tough, um, tough news to get. What, there's almost a, a, an immediate need, isn't there, for some form of um, mental, emotional counsel for uh, the first responders, for neighbors, for there are so many people. And, and, you know, sadly, with everything we go through, so much that is uh, in person in terms of options for that feels limited. But I, I can only imagine, um, you know, you sign up to be a cop, a, a firefighter, an EMT, Patrick, and it is, uh, it, it, you're ready. You, you're ready for anything. And then something like this, you think you're ready and it just completely yeah. overwhelms you. You'll never, ever, if you're on the scene, get those images out of your head. It's beyond tragic. You know, 
first responders have to see things that we would never want to see. Uh, and, you know, we had one firefighter who risked his own life trying to get in. Um, he had to be attended to by paramedics as well. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, I'm obviously my heart goes out to the family and, I, and I'm worried about our, our paramedics, police and firefighters are on the scene because, you know, that that emotional carnage of, of what they had to see is going to stay with them. It will. Um, Mayor of uh, Brampton, uh, Patrick Brown, uh, we'll try and slide along. I know it's not easy for you, and I appreciate you, uh, you, you know, staying with me and, and doing doing the chat. Um, the restrictions that were lifted yesterday, what was your immediate reaction to some of them? Um, we've been locked down pretty hard in the depth of winter, a massive snowstorm. You couldn't check more boxes against what this is doing to all of our, uh, you know, bandwidth and mental health capacity. What were some brighter lights yesterday from the premier's announcement? Well, at least we're starting the reopening. Um, but I would say for me, it's 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 too it's too cautious. It's it's too slow. Earlier this week, I was watching that dreadful uh, Leafs Rangers game where they uh, <laughs> blew that three one lead, and as I was watching it. Um, I looked at the, the crowd in New York, and it was a full it was a full rink. And you know, you look at other provinces and other states, and life is, goes on. They've adapted. Um, they deal with uh, Omicron. And here in um, Ontario, I, I feel that we're sort of uh, stuck in time during the beginning of COVID with broad-based closures that do not exist elsewhere. You know, we're. Give the, give the Premier credit. We're making progress. I'm glad kids are back in school. We had lost more school days than any other jurisdiction in North America. But the fact that we don't have kids' sports as of today, even though our hospital capacity is getting better, our hospitalization is actually declining. You know, we, we, we're, we're turning the corner on Omicron. I don't want to see rec centers closed. You know, I, I had another small business call me two days ago telling me that they're going to have to declare bankruptcy. I hate getting those calls. It, it just, um, it, there is a, there's a, an economic pull to these lockdowns. And you know, if I thought our ICUs would be overrun, I would get um, why, why they're keeping these lockdowns on for until January 31st. But our hospital capacity can handle this. And, you know, I just... I just struggle with how slow this reopening is going to be. The, the fact that it takes us to to March, um, you know, we're going to be one of the few jurisdictions in North America that still has a, has restrictions like this. Mayor Patrick Brown, our guest on Toronto Today. I, I dig hard on the data. I'm sure you do. I'm sure you have staff that do so. You can be uh, educated and pragmatic uh, about this. That's the job. Um, and it's my job, too, in a way, despite the emotionality I show sometimes and a little bit of yelling once in a while. That said, I I still look and I go, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what anything we did on January 3rd did to impact uh, hospitalizations and ICUs, if if not ever so slightly, and you and I have talked about risk benefit analysis. We've talked about um, you know the the greater good here, and there is no doubt, no doubt about learning loss and lack of socialization and and kids being behind and elective surgeries, and we can go on and on of everything that gets paused. Okay, so it's not just a workout or a hockey game for you and me. It's a lot more than that for people thirty years older and thirty years younger. Well, you know, one of the greatest pressures on the healthcare system is cardiac issues, uh, diabetes, rising rates of obesity, 
by encouraging a healthy lifestyle where we can have seniors go to the recreation center and we've got seniors that go walking around our tracks every day in the in the warmth of the recreation centers we've got busy busy recreation centers with kids and adults and you get people out of their routine um there's a cost to that there is a public health cost you know we want to encourage healthy lifestyles and so i feel that we're only looking at the immediate risks and immediate challenges rather than looking at the totality of the cost these lockdowns have on our society and um you know you mentioned mental health with kids i think that is real we've heard that from oh. sick kids we've heard that from the pediatric pediatric associations and you know i i just hope now that the government's committed to reopening timeline it doesn't change again they're doing the right thing reopen um you know there can't be any more false starts Patrick Brown is our guest. Um, take us in the lens. Step out of uh, of um, you know what you do for uh, for a living and what and what you do as a parent. What? How old's your oldest now? How old's uh, Theo? Uh, two and a half. So what do you see? I, I you know I I'm able to have conversations with sort of with 13 and 15 year olds in my household. What do you see? He's been alive for what 85 percent, 90 percent of this pandemic. What do you see yeah. in him? What do you what are you proud of? What do you worry about? Take us there if you can. Well, he's only known a lockdown, um, and so you know, I I, I just hope that very soon uh, kids are going to be able to have normal lives. I, I don't think how we've lived for the last two years is normal or or healthy, and so you know, I'm optimistic. And I, when I speak to the to the physicians, that you know, they believe this is going to turn from a pandemic to an endemic, and um, the sooner that happens, the the, the the better. Because I think there's been um, and this has been really really rough, not just on families and small businesses, but 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 kids. You know, th- th- this is not normal living. Um, the, the the fact that you've been able to encourage people, and you were doing this last uh, winter as well, to get people to get outside, to have you know skating rinks, to have it, it is it, it was one thing in April and May. You and I talked about youth sports being lost, tennis, pickleball, seniors not being able to go out and golf after waiting all winter. They did everything they were asked to do. No, nope, sorry, you can't golf for five weeks. We got to keep mobility down. Okay. It's so much harder now, isn't it, with the temperature and the time of year and the grind that we've been through the last 21 months. What are your residents doing to to just try and make the most of it? So, you know, we're trying to make uh, lemonade out of the lemons that is this lockdown. And so knowing that I have this concern about it, sending people to their couches to, to do nothing, we've created a slew of outdoor activities from skiing to snowshoeing uh, to cleaning our outdoor trails so people can race, uh, can, can cycle and, uh, and walk and run. We are clearing our artificial turf soccer fields so people can play soccer in the winter. But one of my favorite contests that we started is a backyard rink contest. We built a lot of new community ice rinks to give people venues to play hockey or go pleasure skating. But I convinced Wendell Clark and Doug Gilmore to... Um, come and play shinny on the top rinks in in Brampton. And so we've got a contest going on until January 31st that you send your photos in of your backyard rink and the winners get this incredible experience to, to play hockey with, with two Leaf uh, captains in their own backyard. And on top of that, we got prizes donated from Tim Hortons and Canadian Tire for everyone that builds a rink. Our fire department has agreed to come out and flood rinks when they're not busy, so they've been busy flooding rinks during their off hours. We're probably going to get a thousand new backyard rinks in our city, so mm. it's uh, 
it's been a really fun contest, and it's blown up in the city. So it's uh, you know a silver lining in a in a, in a difficult uh, few weeks. Yeah, it sure. Got two weeks ago, we're walking, and, and my wife and I are saying, I'm sure at some point it'll get cold enough for the backyard rinks to to pop up. And uh, presto, great! I'm so glad we asked for that. But you're making, like you said, you're making uh, you know lemonade out of lemons. You also just casually dropped uh, two of the most popular. You know, it's not like you're getting Vesa Toscala in to uh, to be part of your plans there. It's not like you're doing that. I, you know, he did his best. I get it, but still. You know, the funny thing is, I think the parents are more excited about the <laughs> Wendell than the kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they kind of they kind of switch bodies, uh, as it were. I know how heavy your heart is. I know how heavy the community's heart is. Um, and uh, it, honestly, from all of us here at uh, 640 Toronto, our hearts go out to you. If there's anything we can do in terms of raising money, anything, you tell us and, uh, and we'll try and be there because we want to be that show, that radio station. Thank you for the phone call today. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. We're going to talk about the vaccine passport, the vaccine mandate, and where its future goes. I think there's renewed talk about it based on the lifting of some restrictions yesterday, um, not all, from January 3rd. And we're still talking about some March 14th. We don't have a clue. There's nobody that can forecast what March 14th looks like. Um, Our next guest, fantastic data when it comes to real estate. I love digging into a lot of demographics, as you know, love the numbers. uh, And he's great at it with real estate. Dr. Mike Moffat joins me, senior director uh, from uh, Smart Prosperity. And he's also assistant prof at Ivy Business School um, at uh, Western University, a former uh, Londoner like myself. It's great to have you on, Mike. Thanks for making the time. Oh, thank you for having me. Of course. The the number I looked at that I thought was fascinating, and I, I reached out to you about it, was something you pushed out on uh, on Monday. The percentage of Ontario's zero to four-year-olds that live in the city of Toronto since 1986. The graph has a steep um, upswing until about the turn of the century. And around 2001, there's a big, big drop. But I can't. I cannot believe the drop that's been experienced. Not just since the pandemic, Mike, but let's say the last half decade or so. People with young kids are getting right on out of Toronto. Yeah, absolutely. So you know, two decades ago, uh, about twenty-two percent of Ontarians uh, lived within the city of Toronto, and there was no real difference uh, by by age. So you know, kids and older people uh, living in Toronto by the same proportion. Um, that's changed over the last few years. The, the number of people over, or the proportion of people over the age of five hasn't changed all that much. It's dropped slightly. Uh, but the proportion of kids under five has, has just plummeted. It's, uh, you know, down under 19%. And that's been happening over the last, uh, I'd say six to seven years as, uh, real estate prices keep going up and up and up. And we have a, a shortage of, family-friendly homes. Uh, families are, you know, sort of voting with their feet and uh, trying to find housing that suits their needs. And it's unbelievable because some people might be more inclined to get that space in the beginning. They want a backyard that's not a postage stamp or they want a backyard, period. So they might start with a young kid in the suburbs. And then when either those kids are older or especially when they're empty nesters, they might say, well, a downtown condo sounds great to me. I don't need the big yard anymore. I don't need the swimming pool. And they move in. But this this trend is remarkable because it's people saying with young kids, which you have and I once had, um, we need the space and we need uh, daycare as well. I want to bring that up. How much more um, friends of mine that live in the city proper pay for daycare than I do out in the suburbs. It's It's monstrous. 
Well, well, that's just it. Yeah. So it's it's just all those sort of associated uh, associated costs, and it's causing uh, it's causing Toronto to get quite a bit older. And we 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 have these sort of issues across the province where you've got schools in uh, many neighborhoods in Toronto that are sort of half full. And then you've got uh, all the communities that people are moving to, uh, like Woodstock and Thorold, you know, where you've got brand new schools that have more portables than classrooms. So you're, you're really seeing this, uh, this, this population aging uh, in Toronto uh, with the city getting quite a bit older. Mike Moffat is our guest on Toronto Today on 640 Toronto. How much of a factor does immigration play in? And, and you know what it's like. Uh, you could be at a backyard barbecue in the summer when, when those things are, yes, once again allowed, and it's warm enough to do that. And you'd say, I've got some opinions on immigration. Everybody, it's like E.F. Hutton. Everybody stops because they're not sure what you're going to say. But immigration in Vancouver and Toronto, and you've, you've isolated some of the, and amplified some of the, these demographics. When, when new Canadians come here, those are the two cities they end up in. Uh, at least that's a start, yeah. And uh, a lot of it is sort of unplanned, uh, that, that Ontario has a growth plan that's sort of uh, expected to accommodate uh, this growth. And those growth plans are, are based on population forecasts. And over the last decade, uh, they have massively underestimated how quickly the province is growing, and particularly uh, the, uh, the population of uh, international students. And what's happening is many of those young families who are leaving are, are actually the, the, the immigrants and the international students from 10 years ago. So, you know, they're initially landing in Toronto, and then after, after a decade, they start to have their first kid and say, you know, we, can't, we just can't make a go of it here, so mm-hmm. uh, we're going to move somewhere else in the province. You put out a chart earlier this morning that I find fascinating, and, and you document that you were blown away by it, the exodus out of the GTA in Hamilton. So I think we all, every listener would go, yeah, I've got a friend that works in or did work prior to the pandemic in downtown Toronto proper, but they moved out to Dundas or they moved out, you know, where, where say, I am in, you know, Ajax, Whitby area, and they don't mind the commute in. They can handle it. Maybe they work early morning, whatever. That's changing dramatically also just in the last two and a half years. Well, well, absolutely. So we've uh, seen on net in the last year 60,000 people leave the GTHA. So that, you know, uh, accommodates both people coming in and people uh, going out. And we have to understand that that's a large geographic area. Like we've always had, uh, you know, situations of people living in downtown Toronto and then having a kid and maybe moving to, you know, Etobicoke or, or Brampton or, or, or wherever. Uh, but now they're they're leaving the the area in, entirely again, going to places like Woodstock and Kitchener and London. Um, you know they were doing that before the pandemic and often commuting back into their, their their jobs in downtown Toronto. But now we've got work from home. That proposition becomes so much more attractive, where it's like, okay, now I can move to these cities, and I don't even have to worry about the commute back, or at least for the time being. Dr. Mike Moffat, our guest on Toronto Today. Um, you document as well, Ontario's population grows about 200,000 a year. We're, we're just at, we're about 14.6 million people now, so we'd be at 15. Um, we might be at 15 now. That number I'm looking at is from 2019. There's not really a flight from Ontario. I'm, I'm fascinated by, from living in the States, 
watching people seemingly leave, it looks this way, blue states for red states. And maybe that's about, yeah, freedom and liberty, but it's also about a lack of restrictions and people who look at parenting and say, I've got a finite time to do this, or my kid needs to play sports or be in in the school choir or whatever. We don't really have that right now. I know people are frustrated by everything that's happened and they've lost time as parents, but I don't, do you see any of those trends that people are getting out of Ontario to somewhere where they've got a few more freedoms right now yeah we, we saw a little bit uh we, we saw a little bit of that uh we were seeing people move out to particularly to atlanta canada now i think it's more driven by just differences in real estate prices than freedoms mm-hmm. uh, but i do think this migration that we're seeing within ontario may have some big political consequences uh over the next decade or so because people are essentially moving from uh, you know, liberal or, or NDP uh, electoral ridings to traditionally conservative ones. So you've got, uh, you know, you've, you've got a lot of 20 and 30 something year old professionals who might kind of skew uh, center left who are moving to places like Tilsonburg, who, you know, who almost always elect conservatives. So you do wonder how that's going to change the, the politics of these places. I know. And, and, you know, uh, Moving and, and picking up your family is uh, is is a hard thing to do and move from point A to point B. And a lot of people love to do the they, they they certainly talk the talk when it comes to politics. If this person gets elected, I'm out of here. I saw that a lot in the states. I saw that even with the second forget Donald Trump. I saw that with the second election of uh, of George W. Bush in 2004 when he beat John Kerry. So I'm seeing some of that before June. Do you assume like me that that a lot of it is you know uh, walking? There's, there's just jobs that I have to be in my area to do what I do. You probably would say the same thing about what you do. There's there's not a lot of people that can just pick up and go if they're if they're, you know, in this professional class. Well, well, absolutely, particularly, you know, with things like licensing uh, restrictions and things like that because a lot of the movement we're seeing uh, you know, those middle class jobs like 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 teacher and nurse and so on that usually have licensing requirements. So you can't, you know, even if you can get a job, you can't necessarily just pick up and, uh, you know, move to, to New, New Brunswick or the United States uh, simply because your credentials aren't going to get recognized. So people are, for the most part, are staying within the province. They're just kind of moving uh, from one part of the province to another. Mike Moffat, uh, six forty Toronto. It's great to have you on. Your uh, your stuff on this is just brilliant, and I love following you and, and getting a read on uh, on some of the trends that we see here. Thanks for making the time for me, and I hope all is well. Oh, uh, thank you. Take care. Very happy to have our next guest on. Uh, he writes for the Financial Times, and he's a fantastic follow on Twitter. You can find him at Murdoch. Uh, for COVID data, we've been watching the U.K. like a hawk here in Canada, and the United States as well, I think, has been watching the U.K. after looking at South Africa and Denmark. Uh, but uh, we're, we're seeing excellent trends going towards the future. Obviously, there's a lot of political chaos in the United Kingdom right now, but that doesn't necessarily factor into the data. Our guest is John Byrne Murdoch from the Financial Times. It is great to have you on. I, I'm such a fan of uh, your work and following you. You also do two things that I love. You, uh, you're you a runner, so I envy that. I, I can only run inside on treadmills because of how bad my knees are, but you get after it. And I, I noticed from your tweets, you also gave up the uh, game Football Manager, which, like me, John, uh, it was killing everything. My career, my relationships, everything. And I agree with you. When I'm 70, I'll play it nonstop. Nonstop, John. 
<laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It was uh, by far the most serious addiction problem I've ever had. And uh, yeah, glad to be through that. There are worse things to be addicted to that are harder to shake. I think we'd uh, agree on that. Do I have that right for our audience that you're watching um, Omicron had an incredibly steep rise and fall in South Africa? Are we starting to see that echoed in the numbers you see in the United Kingdom? Yeah, we are. So it's broadly speaking, yes. So um, cases certainly for the for the first week or two after they peaked in the UK have been have been falling quite steeply. Um, so in London, for example, the the fall is is pretty much a mirror image of the rise. So just as we were very alarmed at how fast it rose, it's been falling just as steeply. Um, the the slight wrinkle in that though, just over the last few days, is that. Overall, um, in the UK and or in England, um, that rate of decline does now seem to have slowed, and it seems to be slowing um, at a at a point where it's it's sort of not so much reflecting what had happened before. So, whereas it was a, a relatively smooth um, increase, we're now seeing that smooth decrease start to level off a little bit. And there's there's probably a couple of things going on there. The mm-hmm. most obvious one is that schools in the UK uh, went back. Um, around uh, around two weeks ago just over two weeks ago and and the result of that of course is more transmission more mixing among children so we've seen for a, for a good week or more now the number of cases among uh, children in, in England has been rising um, it's now risen probably about 25 percent just over the last four or five days and we're seeing the impact of that on those children's parents as well so if you look at people aged in their in their 30s 40s maybe early 50s you also see that whereas numbers had been falling quite steeply in those groups, they've now leveled off and are, and are no longer falling. So I think that's it's not unexpected um, that we would see that pattern. I think the key thing really is what happens next, because it may be that, you know, we had this very, very high peak. We're now seeing a slight mm-hmm. sort of leveling off, sort of a, if you imagine a downward slope and then a, a step on that slope. What's What remains to be seen is whether... Then this this rise in transmission among children at school sends the overall numbers back up, and if so, um, how far? Or whether this ends up just being very much a a sort of small blip, a bump in the road downwards, as it were. John Burr Murdoch, our guest from the Financial Times on Toronto today. I can tell you in Toronto and Ontario, we just sent kids back. We had a bad snowstorm. So Monday and Tuesday, kids were home learning virtually or, or out of school period, what we'd call a snow day. But they went back Wednesday. We will, I'm sure we'll see an uptick in cases. The benefit of the boosters, the benefit of being fully vaccinated for parents is we, we are all hoping those cases don't translate into hospitalizations and ICU visits. And and I think that's that's the bet to some extent that every government's making. And, and I don't know... A, a way around making so, a, a wager to that extent, given some of the acquired immunity, John, and obviously really high vaccination rates here and in the UK. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I think essentially we've we've got very high vaccination rates in the UK, and when you combine that with relatively high levels of prior infection before the Omicron wave as well, there is there's a huge amount of immunity here, and, and we've already seen that that has um, weakened the the link, as it were, between cases and more acute outcomes. I mean, if, if we look at London, for example, uh, cases got as high as uh, almost double their their level last winter, whereas the number of people in hospital with COVID um, got only half as high as last winter and the number of deaths only around one fifth as high. So so we've already seen that that very clear benefit. And, and as you say, I think the, the interesting thing about these school driven bumps is going to be that if these if what we see is essentially a, a rise in cases among children, perhaps a very small rise among their parents, and 
more of a leveling out among the older age groups, mm-hmm. we would expect that to lead to um, less less hospitalizations, fewer hospitalizations than we saw uh, a, a month ago when when those those rises in cases were just as steep in the elderly as the young. John, are some of the severe outcomes still believed? I know it's really hard to parse the data. Are some of these bad outcomes still, as we are here just past mid-January, still believed to be Delta? I mean, Delta didn't vanish into thin air, but with Omicron becoming, and it was obvious from the day it was announced, it was going to become the more dominant variant. Um, But there are still people that would make the case that some of the deaths and some of the severe outcomes with ICUs are are still the Delta variant. Is there any, any data or a sense of it from you about about that it, it is tricky to see so we we don't have those breakdowns um in the uk i have seen some of that data from france though so they've they've been breaking down the the numbers in hospital by uh, the variant that those those people are believed to have been infected with mm-hmm. um and they what they seem to show is that there are still people in, in france for example in hospital at the moment certainly who were who were infected with with Delta. Um, so, you know, I, I do think it's possible that, yes, some some people who are very severely ill with COVID or who perhaps have died in the last few days in, in England will be people who had the Delta variant. Because if you think that it's usually something like two or three weeks um, between between a, being a, a testing positive and then, and then um, succumbing to the disease, two or three weeks ago, there was certainly still a decent amount of of the Delta variant circulating. So some some of these will be, but I, I think it's it's unreasonable to expect that that all of them are Delta, certainly. So so we could it is it's certainly true that the Omicron variant can can um, cause death as well. I mentioned the politics of uh, of what's happening in the UK right now. It's quite fascinating to watch from here. Um, that said, masks, um, it's going to be a fascinating scenario. We're certainly getting told, and you've seen it in the United States uh, south to us, that the CDC says these cloth masks, they're not going to do much for you at this point in time. And the UK, I thought was fascinating, they never put kids in masks in school until they went back in January. And it's mostly for secondary school. I, t- what I've seen is there hasn't been a kid masked in school ever under the age of 11. And some of the numbers, obviously, especially in a post-vaccination universe, has has held. It doesn't. It just doesn't seem to be the political, you know, uh, wrestling match or hot potato that it is here in North America in the UK, or is it? Yeah, I mean, there's, there certainly has been a lot of... Uh sort of um, a lot of strong opinions about masks in the UK. But I think, as you say, it's never been quite as partisan, perhaps, as it is in the in, in North America. So, so certainly from what I hear in the US, you get this this strong sort of de- Democrat-Republican divide. I'm, I'm not sure how exactly that plays out in, in Canada. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in, in the UK, you know, people, people, some people have strong opinions about masks, but it's it's not the majority, I don't think. There's a sort of pragmatism. If, you know, if I, if I go on the London Underground at the moment, Still, the clear, a clear majority of people are wearing masks, um, and it's you can't really predict who's going to be masking and who isn't based on someone's sort of politics or or other ca- characteristics. So there are people do have views, but I think, as you say, it's just not quite as polarized here. Yeah, it's one of those weird ones, right? I think if you and I were going to a football match and we were, you know, boosted, we might say, well, we might put it on if we're going on the underground, but if we're obviously walking to, you know, Arsenal or Chelsea, we wouldn't. If I was taking my 78-year-old dad and he was willing to go, I'd say, dad, you might want to have a mask on more often than I do. I, I just, as you know, with public health, there's not much that works that's one size fits all. And and some of that messaging, I, I think we're all finally turning the page on one size fits all health messaging. 
Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's you know, in some ways, that's long overdue. It's it it obviously doesn't help um, public health if if people if people are sort of associating these different positions with well with being that with being sort of positions and politics and mm-hmm. and good or bad. I think I think what we're starting to approach perhaps is a bit more of a consensus. Uh, more of a sense that a lot of these things are helpful, but they're not um, silver bullets that solve everything. And therefore, that, that you know, if someone is wearing a mask or isn't wearing a mask, that is a decision they've come to. It is, you know, someone not wearing a mask in a crowded space. That is um, not a brilliant idea, but it doesn't mean they're necessarily a terrible person. And I think that perhaps is, gonna, is actually going to be one of the key um, shifts in in the way this is all playing out over the next couple of months is that, that slow realisation that, People are going to make some different decisions, and that is not going to be a sort of binary thing which determines whether we end up in a in a great position or a terrible one. I think that's so encouraging, and we're watching your country really closely. I love what you do, and uh, and thank you for doing what you do and putting the time and energy in you do, and for our show and for our listeners today as well, John. Thanks very much. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. John Byrne Murdoch from the Financial Times. Okay, we do What Happened When here, January 21st. Um, just some breaking news in from Down Under, because all this stuff happens overnight. Naomi Osaka uh, out. She lost to a, the 60th-ranked player, so she will not defend her Australian Open uh, championship. She's out. And uh, so a new women's champion, and guys, a new men's champion, because the other guy is like some Jovac Smokovic. I can't remember. It's something I can't remember the name. I have no Novax. idea. It hasn't been in the ah. new, hasn't, Novax. <laughs> Has yeah, you just change the K to the X and everybody, <laughs> everybody has a has a laugh. But uh, so new champions, maybe a Canadian, maybe Dennis Shapovalov, Felix Ojeel, Ali Asim, They both won overnight as well. So no more Naomi Osaka for the time being. I'm yeah, just updating you there. That's pretty big. On this day, January 21st, though, we've got a couple of days to observe just to start things off. National Granola Bar Day. Big fan of the granola bars. Huh? Not me. Anybody else? I love a good granola bar. Yeah, not yeah me. me too. But, They're but, healthy. Yeah, I don't like the actual, like, the good ones. I like the ones that are dipped in chocolate and, like, have marshmallows <laughs> oh. and stuff so, in like, them. So, like, the ones my five-year-old likes. Yep. Okay. Yeah. The ones that have nothing but fruit and nuts in them are tricky. Yeah, I think it needs, you need some kind of a sugar coating, and the chocolate provides that. Exactly. Sometimes the cinnamon ones are uh, are okay. But it's I can't... a good snack, especially after a workout or if you're somewhere and you're stuck or you're in your car and you need something. It's a quick thing to just pull out of like the Who you are know, you the talking to, Sheba? <laughs> Do you feel like they didn't get even invented until like like the late 70s, early? Like nobody was walking around in the 50s eating granola bars, were they? <laughs> I feel like. Nobody was drinking they water They were eating granola either. though. Like our parents never the drank granola water. was around, wasn't it? I guess I don't it was. Know. Your parents didn't. I think it was Quaker Oats was the closest thing he got to granola. But I don't think anybody drank water. You, like the idea of even buying water in a bottle was not even a thing till like 1990 or so. Seriously. Yeah, it's true, actually. Um, also, today is Squirrel Appreciation Day. Now they, we're talking. I can there we go. get Are behind you? eating that. <laughs> um, they're okay, right? Because I don't think we think they cause the problems raccoons do. But they're nowhere near as cute as like a chipmunk when you see a chipmunk running around in your backyard. You're worried. You're worried the squirrel could go a little mental on you. Now you see. A bunch of years ago, we put up a bird feeder on the back deck when, when my, my son was really little. So we thought, oh, this would be fun. He can watch the birds eat and stuff like that. The squirrels came and took it over. They're so terrible. So we, we took away <laughs> the bird feeder on that very same day. They hung out like a gang on our back deck, then started eating the wood of the deck. And I'm like, guys, 
turf wars. Yeah. Or girls. I mean, that you know, could be girls. That's a shame, know. just but the yeah. male squirrels. Yeah. There I were... live in a neighborhood with a lot of coyotes, and we're just so used to them. Like, if the kids are walking to school, they, like, run right by the kids. Like, everybody's, it's, it's like stray dogs now. And often you'll see a coyote with, like, a squirrel hanging out of its mouth, like, running down the road. <laughs> it's kind of cool, to be honest. It's kind of cool. It's the circle of life. We'll fast yes. forward to in this day, 1997. It debuted in theaters, the film Jerry Maguire. You don't know what it's like to be me out here for you. It is an up-at-dawn, pride-swallowing siege that I will never fully tell you about, okay? God, help me. Help me, Rod. Help me. Help you. Help me. Me help you. You are hanging on by a very thin thread. <laughs> and I dig that about you. <laughs> no contract? I help me. I help you. Help everybody. <laughs> I love that scene. I love that movie. I really enjoyed seeing Jerry Maguire. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a good, and it holds up too. If you watch it again, it's it's, it's actually hey, pretty good. So Cuba Gooding Jr. won the best supporting actor Oscar for that one. Tom, but then he never did anything really great after that. No, he didn't. No, we didn't. We did the push-ups on the stage of the Oscars. That's we did true. That, and then that was kind of it. He did T- a couple <laughs> bad movies, and then... Tom Cruise has never won an Oscar. Should he have? Jeffrey Rush won that year for Shine, and I, I don't remember anything about Shine. No one's ever seen Shine a second time, even if they saw it a first time. Tom Cruise was great in Born on the Fourth of July. He's had a lot of nominations, but he's was. never won. Oh, amazing movies. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, I don't know about the Katie Holmes thing, Sheba, but whatever. That's he's he'll always be my Maverick, so he can do no you wrong. You can't wait he's for Maverick. that Top Gun sequel. Oh, I, that's the reason I ride a motorcycle is because of him, because he inspired me as a little girl watching that. I thought he was so cool. I didn't when know I was you rode enough. a motorcycle. Yeah, I went. I got my. Well, as soon as I was old enough, I got my motorcycle license. As soon as I could afford to buy my own, I went and got a bike. Shooting because, guns and um, riding motorcycles, Dave. Maverick. No stopping her. It's a regular so Annie Oakley. Wow. <laughs> I thought I Tom was... Cruise can do no wrong. That's my point. I thought he inspired me just to play beach volleyball. <laughs> we, 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 we've seen we've seen the footage of that. It's really interesting. Keep your shirt on, Gordon. That's right. Why is on that the... man wearing a sweater? <laughs> <laughs> on this day, 1998, the number one song in the Billboard charts, "Savage Garden," truly, madly, deeply. I love when Dave announces the ballads. <laughs> <laughs> With a confused tone to my voice. With a, yes. Like, why? Why yeah. is this number Just some, one? Just some soft rock for a you know a pleasant evening drive down the 401 on a gorgeous July evening. That's what I picture. There you go. Come on, wallflowers. That's a beautiful scene. That's right. Picture. Yes. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, thanks. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Savage Garden. Uh, 7 o'clock news on the way. I was just getting caught at the moment there. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. We'll see everybody with a live show after. Uh, we hope you have a great weekend. We will certainly do that. We all need it, and you do as well. We'll be back with a live show 530 to 9 right here on 640 Toronto, and you'll find us where you find your podcast. Thanks for downloading, subscribing, etc., etc. Take care of each other.